Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Before we begin today's episode, we just want to give a special thank you shout out to Delta Kappa Gamma New Chapter out of Utica, New York, for recognizing the Missing Chapter podcast at their March meeting. We had the opportunity and privilege of meeting some incredible educators, presenting our experience, creating, developing, and producing our podcast to listeners worldwide. So on behalf of the Missing Chapter and all of our fans and listeners, DKG, take us into this week's episode. Here in central New York, we are in close proximity to many historic sites and cities. Cooperstown and Albany, Saratoga, Niagara Falls, and of course, New York City, just to name a few. We've mentioned it before in previous episodes. We really are centrally located to many places that have some serious historical significance. It's a playground for historians, really. One of the best parts of being so historically located, though, is that we are continuously learning more about our area and the people who have made a significant impact on our state, our nation, and in some respects, our world as a whole. Well, on today's episode, we're looking forward to sharing a story about a man who really changed the world, and he's from upstate New York in Lewis County. Did I get your attention yet? Are you on pins and needles? Listen in to this episode of The Missing Chapter, and let's find out who this person is and what kind of impact he really had worldwide. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to another edition of the Missing Chapter Podcast. You are here with Phil Hornder and Phil Schaff. Phil, we're sitting down to a nice cup of coffee. Um, we are at that time of year where... You know, April showers bring May flowers, they like to say. We have a lot going on at the Missing Chapter podcast. We, we just wrapped up um, April Fools. We have Melissa Fisher on with another tremendous episode next week for our, our listeners to look forward to. I have to share something with everyone out there uh, in Missing Chapter world. Utica Coffee Roasting Company, we, we obviously enjoy almost every week. Mm-hmm. They got me pretty good on April Fool's. I was, I was skimming through, scrolling through Facebook, and I came across one of their advertisements for Utica Coffee Roasting Company's three new flavors. Ready, Phil? Chicken Riggies, Utica Greens, and Tomato Pie. You looked at that, and immediately your mind switched <laughs> to, that's got to be an April Fool's. And I said, well, <laughs> I hope it's not. Because that sounds really good to me. And you were like, really? Here's the description. I'll give you the the description for Chicken Riggies. Rich coffee with a creamy tomato sauce, chicken, and cherry peppers. Listen, I was just curious. Yeah. I like trying the new flavors that they have. 
I'm not saying I would have enjoyed that, but I also, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that in fact, you were right. It wasn't April fools. I was duped. I'm disappointed though, that they didn't Listen. really dabble in something like chicken Riggies coffee. Cause I would have tried it. If you want me to bring in some Riggies. Yeah. We'll blend them up. We'll put them in some grounds and we'll do our own flavor test. Don't we can toy do with that, me. That's... We can do that and we can let everyone know how that goes. <laughs> I, I just love the fact that like your your excitement was immediately followed by sheer disappointment when I was like, no, that's an April Fool's joke. Yep. You're like, no, 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 really, no. really it is. And then you open it up further and, oh, no. <laughs> and it made, it made me feel better, though, because I looked at the comments on Facebook and people were like, hey, can we grab these in the store? Are these available in Hannaford? So I wasn't the only one, which made me feel a little bit better. Um but there you go. I'm wondering if people at home had had one of those uh, a similar moment on April Fools. I I know having two kids at home, they they yeah. love trying to get mom and dad with their April Fools jokes, which is always kind of fun. Well, it, it was one of those things too, where um, as much as I love the Utica greens, the tomato pie, mm -hmm. and for those of you that are, are listening out of state or out of, out of uh, this area, um, it, it, that's one of our our the things that Utica is known for is the food and tomato pie, half moon cookies. Uh, chicken riggies, we all kind of, you know, mm -hmm. stake claim to to the origins of those things. But um, to mix them with coffee, as much as I love coffee, I almost gag worthy. I, ha I have to say, yeah, you were other at the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, for sure. But Phil, uh, we have another great episode. Yeah, and, and we're entering spring, and we're getting ready to tackle summer. And I'll tell you, the good stories keep coming. We keep coming up with these tremendous stories that we're anxious to share with our listeners. And today is no exception. Yeah, and I'm glad that you you started with uh, local. You started a local story because this is ex actually where we're headed. Uh, we're headed to a, a local uh, area in upstate New York. Um, and we're going to talk about this this individual. I'll keep him anonymous for, for a little bit. Okay. Um, but he was born on July 29th, 1796. And he lived and worked in uh, Martinsburg, New York. So you're, you're kind of talking like the west central part of uh, the county um, in Lewis County. And Martinsburg is actually south of Lowellville, which is the county seat. Now, the community of Martinsburg was the county seat for Lewis County until 1864 when it moved to Lowellville. So kind of a side note, but it gives you a little bit of a background. But this individual was incredibly talented, uh, especially with his hands. So he's a, he's a working man. He invented a variety of tools, household items, um, took his existing machinery, made improvements to it. So just a very brilliant-minded, hardworking man. Um, a lot of innovations, including, ready? Fountain pen, knife sharpener, artificial stone, a hmm. flax spinner, an ice plow, and a new type of rifle. Now, remember that I mentioned a new type of rifle because that's a, a side story that is 100% worth noting. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on, maybe after the break. Um, he had a degree in masonry, but he worked as a farmer in the mill town of Lowville. He received his first patent in 1826 having to deal with a more efficient machinery for local mills. Okay. So once again, improving on the technology that already exists mm -hmm. and also innovating some of his, uh, some new things. So he moved to New York city, still inventing. He was granted patents for several devices, including a rope making machine. Uh, once again, a fountain pen and a new repeating rifle back in that more than that later. Uh, this is where things get a little bit interesting though. In 1833, he invents the first workable sewing machine. So some of you history buffs are probably saying to themselves, wait a second, I think Phil's got his facts wrong. I think Singer was the first sewing uh, machine inventor. There's a story behind that. Well received by the public, this idea, but he okay. never obtained a patent and was reluctant to take the financial risk to manufacture that. Okay, so more on that a little bit later as well. So we got multiple stories going on here at once. 
1834, he built one of the first, let's see if I can pronounce this right, eye-pointed needle sewing machines. It's said that his daughter talked him out of commercializing this, though, because she said it, it's probably going to lead to massive unemployment among seamstresses, uh, seamstresses. Excuse me. So that invention really didn't amount to much. So he has all of these things going on. He has all these inventions, improvements, most of which he really could have received thousands, possibly millions. Okay. But he just never took either the financial risk or never maybe saw the worth in some of these things. Brilliantly minded but maybe not the best financial risk taker, okay, to see some of these things through. Right. Maybe he wasn't looking for the financial element of this rather than just, hey, this is going to make my life and the lives of the people who know me easier and more efficient. Completely possible. Okay. Yes. Amazingly, while this is happening, uh, he gets into an intellectual, intellectual property struggle over the sewing machine after inventor Elias Howe patents a machine just like it in 1846. Now, if you fast forward a century into the 1950s, Isaac Merritt Singer, who I mentioned earlier, began mass marketing this eye-pointed needle sewing machine. And he brought it, he brought a suit against this guy, Howe, who wished to be paid royalties for the machine. Now, while this is going on, Singer attempts to fight Howe's patent by showing that this technology was not only decades old, it was revealed that this gentleman I'm talking about right now had been the original creator of, uh, of this type of system, that Howe had laid claim to. Okay. So while there's a dispute going on between Singer and Howe over this sewing machine, it's revealed that, hey, listen, there's actually an inventor that was prior, you know, both both of us, that, that, that this existed for decades. That neither person was privy to. Pretty much okay. until they started digging until they it start, Okay. Yep. Uh, so they kind of abandoned the concept. He's like, yeah, I'm never really going to patent it. Um, and then that brings us to the whole dispute between Howe and Singer. So in 1954, Howe's patent was actually upheld over a technicality, and this gentleman never got credit for being the actual inventor. So you think he would have learned, but now he faces a situation where he owes a man a $15 debt. Now, in that time period, 15 bucks is a lot of money. Yeah. So he's trying to conjure up a new invention that would help him pay off the debt. So in three hours, he came up with something that we all use uh, pretty much all the time. We take for granted how brilliant of an invention it actually is, especially because it's sometimes the most brilliant inventions uh, are kind of held within its simplicity and functionality. A hundred percent. Right. And I have no idea what you're talking about. So I'm, right. I'm anxious to hear what, what you have for us. So he takes a, a piece of twisted wire and starts twisting and twisting. Remember, three hours it took him to figure this out. And he created a device called the dress pin with a circular spring at one end that forces the other sharp end into a protective covering. So the man who is now cemented in history for this uh, invention is none other than inventor Walter Hunt, the inventor of the useful everyday device known as the safety pin. Wow. In 1849. Wow. So his invention was not entirely new. It was a little bit of an improvement on the concept that the mm -hmm. ancient Romans had in jewelry and clothing. He was the first contemporary he wasn't the first contemporary version of the safety pin. Um, a version appeared in 1842 that did not include the spring mechanism uh, that Hunt designed. But this feature, of course, exists in virtually every safety pin I think mm -hmm. I could ever mm -hmm. conjure up um, that we're accustomed to using to today. But at the time, he apparently didn't think much of this invention. And once again, just like all the other things from 
the fountain pen to all these different machinery improvements mm -hmm. to the innovations that he's had to right down to the sewing machine, which he should have patented. Um, he patented the safety pin on April 10th, 1849. Okay. So it's actually, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're posting this episode on April 8th here, are April 10th. So it's pretty fitting. U.S. patent number 6,281 uh, goes to the safety pin. But ready? He willingly sold rights to this invention for $400. So he could pay off a $15 debt. So sales of this invention would later earn, I mean, tons of, yeah. I would say, opportunistic businessmen. I mean, just massive, huge fortune, uh, fortunes. But Hunt never earned another penny for mm -hmm. this creation. So brilliant inventor, maybe not the best of, of businessmen, but don't forget there's more to this. So after the break, we'll get into the part of the story that I mentioned in the beginning. Whatever happened to this rifle invention, all right? So we're going to talk about that a little bit more and maybe some of his financial struggles after the break. Now, this is great, Phil, and I have to admit, what it immediately made me think of is something we start the, the school year with with our students every year in that the History Channel a couple of years ago compiled the uh, a list of the 100 most important gadgets ever invented. And there's mm -hmm. some very simple ones on there that we don't necessarily think of, but certainly we use on a daily basis. And it, the technology behind those simple things led to you know, different inventions down the road. And things like the safety pin that if you were to take them out of our lives, we would surely miss right, and know right. that they were missing. But I, I, I have to admit, that was a, a great kind of reveal. I had no idea what you were talking about. Yeah. And I'm interested to see how you're going to tie it in with that that other little seed you planted with the, the rifle. So it's interesting because there's so many things that we look at that we, I, I know you you just touched on this, that we take for granted the simplicity of these things. And there's something in this guy's mind that can see the, the flaws in it, but the potential in it. Mm -hmm. So you take a, a Roman invention like the, I mean, they didn't call it a safety pin. It was right. a clothespin essentially. Um, and how could he tweak it to make it better? So you have a protective cover, you have the coil at the end. So it, it almost like slides into place and it locks at the same time without having right. a locking mechanism. So the, the locking mechanism is also the protective cover at the same time. It's simultaneous. It's, it's simple. Um, it, it's just, it's just downright brilliant. Yeah. No. You know? And as technology advances in 2023 and beyond, we still rely on those very simple Correct. ways of doing things. So, you know, you're, you're at some point, whether it's out in the garage or I don't know, somewhere else, you're like, ah, I really need a safety pin. Yeah. That would do the job right now. And I think about it, actually, we just had a, a daddy-daughter dance with my five-year-old. And that was one of the first things she put on me was a, was a little corsage, right? Um, proms, you think of yep. safety yep. pins. And you're always worried about stabbing your date with <laughs> the safety pin. <laughs> um, so let's, let's take a minute here and, and, and talk a little bit more about this guy, Hunt. Um, according to Smithsonian Magazine, Hunt was a prolific Yankee mechanical genius who had uh, a penchant for invention and innovation. Unfortunately for him, he was also a Yankee business dunce, mm -hmm. right? And it says, well, that's not entirely fair. He was reportedly a benevolent man who believed in helping others over making a profit. So like you said earlier, maybe he wasn't really concerned about making this huge profit. Um, and, you know, this, this source really tells us a little bit more too. But his business uh, was lacking and his, his ideas were lacking as far as financial opportunities go. And he rarely had the capability to do more than sell the rights to his designs for much less than what they were worth. Hunt's hundreds of inventions include a saw, a steamer, ink stands, a nail making machine, a rifle, a revolver, bullets, bicycles, a shirt collar, a boot heel, and a ceiling walking circus device. 
Some of these items are still in use today, and though Hunt's name is not well known, his creations certainly are. So now this is where we get into what I thought was just, uh, it was an eye-opener for me. So going back to the Smithsonian, uh, he had an idea for what, what he called a, quote, volitional repeater. Okay. It made clever use of several other recent discoveries and repeating mechanisms. Okay. Brilliant, once again, but also prone to failure. So he sold his designs to an entrepreneur by the name of George Aerosmith. Aerosmith, not, not the band. Uh, soon after... The design went into production by the Robbins and Lawrence Arms Company, where three men, okay, three men worked on improvements to the firing mechanism. And pay attention here to the last names of these individuals, ready? Those three men that were working on the firing mechanisms were Benjamin Tyler Henry, Horace Smith, and Daniel B. Wesson. I think I know where you're headed. Thanks to this man's faulty design, the partnership of... Smith and Wesson was born. Wow. wow. So in 1885, an arms conglomerate directed by Oliver F. Winchester bought out Smith and Wesson's company, among other purchases, eventually forming the New Haven Arms Company, which produced one of the most fearsome weapons of the Civil War, the Henry Repeating Rifle. So none of it would have happened without Walter Hunt's volitional repeater. So nonetheless, he seems to have truly been a man who enjoyed the process of creation rather than, you know, seeking the reward, the, the fame, the riches. I mean, he did pretty okay for himself thanks to his various designs for bullets and casings and all these other inventions. But, I mean, he could have been really one of these, these well-known inventors of all time. It's just amazing, though. One person who seemed just like you said, somebody who liked to tinker with things and invent things, maybe as a, a craft right. or a hobby, the man certainly left his stamp uh, on American history and world history. hundred percent. As some sources that I've, I've looked up uh, about Walter Hunt is that he really could have been another Edison. He didn't really have the financial willingness maybe, or he didn't really have the motivation to be, he didn't have fame as a motivator. He didn't have uh, wealth or, or riches. It's hard to describe because you see so much potential. It's almost like I see more potential in his innovation than he saw in his right. inventions um, for profit. You know, it almost seems to, as, as you were talking, maybe he didn't know what route to take in order to get certain things noticed or patented, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of paperwork and, and steps that need to be taken mm -hmm. to go from the small town of Lowville to, you know, the patent office. Yeah. You know, maybe it was just a matter of like, he didn't know how to get there. Like, like you said, maybe he didn't have the finances yeah. To get the ball rolling in many cases. But if nothing else, for a little notoriety on the missing chapter. Absolutely. Why not? Um, and as I'm looking around, uh, you know, this community in rural upstate New York, we see a lot of hunters. We have family that are, uh, you know, that, that enjoy their Second Amendment right, owning pistols and rifles and, and collections of, of rifles. And I, one of the most collectible rifles is the Henry rifle. Yeah. It's, it's well known. There's all sorts of models and so forth. And when you think of the Henry rifle, especially in the Civil War, the Henry repeating rifle, I mean, there's a lot of history that goes in there. I don't think anyone knows Walter Hunt's name when it comes to that. And then you think, all right, certain prolific names like like Winchester, mm. Smith and Wesson. Are you kidding me? That's that's unbelievable. Those are synonymous with with firearms. Hugely, right. yes. Um, so Smith and Wesson, if they, if it weren't for even his faulty design of of, of the the volitional rifle, then they wouldn't have had the opportunity, and we wouldn't have a such a company like Smith & Wesson or Winchester or Henry for that matter. Um, so the, the course of his life 
goes as follows and he, he does his innovations. He does his inventions, uh, never really makes a huge name for himself. He ends up dying on June 8th, 1859 at the age of 63. Um, but he, he, he did as, as much as I can see, spend his life in the shadow of men like Oliver Winchester, Elias Howe, Isaac Singer, those guys. And sadly, it's unfortunately how he spends his death as well. Hunt's grave, which is, um, not entirely, I don't know, I would say immodest. It can be found in the shadow of a much larger burial monument of Elias Howe. So still, once again, even though he should be credited for the first invention, mm -hmm. uh, arrival of his Elias Howe not only has the namesake, but he also has the gravesite. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.